Hey, local church. So happy you're here with us today. Um, happy Sunday. Glad that you're here to be uh, joining online with us, uh, wherever you're watching from. Uh, welcome. Um, today, we're going to be wrapping up our New Year series that we've been, uh, over the last few weeks, we've been going over. Um, we've heard some outstanding messages from uh, Caleb, Tim, and Tyler, all revolving around this theme of traveling, traveling into the new year, traveling into new things. Um, we've talked about traveling light, leaving behind the baggage and the things that weigh us down. We've talked about traveling with purpose and pursuing the dreams that God has given us, submitting those to him and running after them. We've talked about traveling to the other side, uh, getting into the boat with Jesus and going on the journey, finding peace in the storm. And today I want to continue with this theme as we wrap up, and I want to talk about traveling with anticipation. Um, I'm going to start by reading two passages from the prophet Isaiah. Um, so the first one is going to be from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 to 6. And it says this, Be strong and do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongues of the mute will sing for joy. The uh, water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Second verse I want to take a look at is in Isaiah 61, just the first verse. It says that the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners. Heavenly Father, speak to us today through your word. Uh, teach us, challenge us, uh, convict us, comfort us, but more importantly, most important thing, bring us closer to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, I'm going to talk a lot about Israel. Um, for those of you who have uh, heard me you know, preach in any or speak in any capacity here at local church, you know that I like to teach from the Old Testament a lot and I like to jump back and forth. I like to draw the connections between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons I, th I like to do this. I think it's really important. Um, I think pri the primary reason, and I'll, I'll just kind of be blunt and say this out loud, is as, I think as Christians, we don't read the Old Testament enough. Um, it's very easy for us to fall into this, these, these cycles of rereading the Gospels or Paul's letters because it's uh, those things, they're speaking directly to us. They're, these are letters to the churches and we are the church. Uh, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Obviously, it's important to read about the life of Jesus and the, the teachings of Paul and Peter and John. But I feel like oftentimes we'll, we'll ignore the, the Old Testament except for maybe the Psalms or some of the prophets. Um, and so I like to teach from the Old Testament and I like to draw the connections between the Old and the New because I think it's important to, I, I just constantly want us to be thinking about the importance of the Old Testament and the significance that it has for us in our journeys as Christians today. And so today uh, I'm going to be doing that very same thing. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at the New Testament. How do these connect? And ultimately my hope is that we can come away with a greater appreciation for the story of the Bible how the whole thing fits together in one narrative. Um, so Israel, they were a people that lived in anticipation. Uh, God had promised things to them throughout the Old Testament, and they structured their world and their worldview around the hope that those things would one day come to pass. It was reflected in their laws, uh, their sacrificial system, and even the way that they governed themselves. 
Everything that they did pointed towards a future hope that they had based on the promises that God had made for them. So they lived in anticipation and they anticipated primarily a day that their Messiah would come and do all the things that had been promised to them by God. They longed for the day that God's kingdom would be established on earth permanently. So we're going to try and do a lot of things today. Um, I want to talk about three promises that were made to Israel throughout the Old Testament, setting the standard for what they anticipated. If they were people that anticipated things, what were they anticipating? What were the promises that they clung to and gave them the hope as they moved forward? And then I want to take some time and talk about how Jesus is the fulfillment of those very promises. So we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament, we're going to spend some time in the New Testament, and then we're going to bring them together. So let's dig in. The first promise that I want to talk about is a promise made to Abraham. If you turn with me to Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 to 3, it says this, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land and your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. A few chapters later in Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abraham said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and my heir, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abraham continued, look, you have given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you were able to. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this first promise that we're going to look at is God is making a covenant with Abraham. And ultimately, all of these promises are covenants. They are a two-way transaction between God and an individual. Um, and it is God promising to do things um, on the condition, essentially, that the people have faith. Right? They're, these are, uh, yeah, these are, these are agreements that have been made between God and, and his people. Um, and so God makes a covenant with Abraham, then Abram, and he promises something to him. He tells him that he will be the father of a great nation and that other nations will be blessed through him. See, Abraham to be a father of a great nation, his descendants will be numerous as the stars and God will bless the nations that bless Abraham and curse the nations that curse him. And we see this when we look at the family of Abraham. Of course, Israel becomes a great nation. While in Egypt, their numbers grow. And when they leave Egypt and they, they enter into the promised land, they prosper for a time. Um, and what about the nations being blessed and cursed? Well, we also see this in the Genesis narrative. As Abraham interacts with other people groups, whether it's Pharaoh or other groups in the land, um, they are cursed or favored by God, depending on how they treat Abraham and his family. So Israel was going to be a great nation. Abraham's family was going to be a great nation with people as numerous as the stars in the sky. And all people were going to be blessed through Israel. And I think that's the important thing I want to highlight in this, in this promise is that Israel wasn't chosen by God. Abraham's family wasn't 
Abraham wasn't called out from his own people into this new land to start a new nation by God simply to exist isolated from the rest of the world. They were chosen to be a light so that the surrounding Gentile nations could come to know God. A professor of mine in university used to say that the Jewish religion is a come and see religion. Israel as a nation was a come and see nation. It was a come and see how great our God is. They were supposed to conduct themselves in such a way they were going to be this great nation that the other nations would see as a light and they would, and Israel would invite them in and say, hey, come and see how great our God is, the one true God. That was the invitation that Israel was meant to provide to the world. The second promise I want to take a look at is a promise made to Moses. In Exodus 6, verses 7 to 8, it says this, God says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This month I've been doing the 30-day Bible shred, um, you know, not to flex or anything, uh, but reading through the whole Bible in such a short amount of time um, has made me realize things that I've never really realized in reading the Bible before. Um, and you start to see how connected everything is. You start to see these little things, um, you know, when you're reading it in such a short period of time, you pick up on these things. Um, and one of the things that became really clear to me early in the, in the Bible shred, uh, reading through the Torah, was how central um, the tabernacle uh, and eventually the temple a little bit later on, but how central the tabernacle was to Israel's worship of Yahweh. Um, the whole sacrificial system was the, the central component of their worship. And it makes sense. Um, there's a New Testament scholar by the name of Matt Thiessen, and he says this, that the Levitical system is all predicated on the desire to be close to God. Israel wants to dwell with God, and God wants to dwell with his people Israel. And this is how it was made possible, was through this system. Israel was given a system that required offerings and sacrifices in order to make it possible for God to dwell amongst them. This whole system was for this purpose. Burnt offerings, sacrifices, festivals, feasts, all designed in such a way that it made it possible for a holy God to dwell amongst unholy people. Because think about this for a minute. God is holy, he's perfect, and he's sinless. God's up here. And humans are fallen, sinful by nature. And these things are incompatible. God can't, God being holy, being set apart from sin, can't dwell where there is sin. And so he needs to do something. He needs to, um, he needs to provide a way to dwell with his people because he desires to dwell with his people. So if you turn with me to Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16 describes the day of atonement. Um, it says this, uh, starting in verse 3, Aaron is to enter the most holy place in the city with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to wear a holy linen tunic and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He is to tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are the holy garments and he must bathe his body with water before he wears them. So think of the steps that Aaron needs to take just to be able to step in to the presence of God. So already we see this divide between the holiness of God and, and, and us as humans. 
Carrying on in verse 5, he is to take from the Israelite community two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. And then next he will take the two goats, placing them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. After Aaron casts lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for an uninhabitable place, he is to present the, the goat chosen for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen for the uninhabitable place is to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement by sending it into the wilderness. Okay, so Aaron has to dress himself in holy garments before, you know, and right before that he has to completely bathe himself. And then he is to make an offering for his own sin, his own atonement, so that he can even stand in the presence of God and do that what's required as the high priest. And then he's to take two goats and he offers them both as atonement for the sins of the people, one of which he kills on the altar and the other is driven out into the wilderness. This is the extent to which the people must go to dwell with their God. All sin needs to be completely removed from the camp. The sins of the people are placed on a goat and then it's driven into the wilderness, taking the sins of the people with it because God desires to live amongst his people and he promises to do so insofar as Israel does these things. As he says to Moses, you will be my people and I will be your God. This is God's heart to dwell with his people. The third promise I want to talk about is the promise made to David. If you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 11, it says this, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and will establish the throne in his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. So God tells David that he will build him a house that will be established forever. A couple weeks ago, Tim preached an excellent message on this very passage. So I'm not going to spend too much time breaking it down because I think Tim did a really excellent job at that. Um, and of course, as Tim talked about, we see the immediate fulfillment of this word in Solomon, right? David's son, who was born after him, who builds the temple for God and God establishes him on the throne. However, the, historically, the church has also understood this passage to be a, a prophetic of the Messiah, pointing to the coming Messiah, the son of David, who would establish a permanent kingdom. Of course, we know from the rest of the Old Testament that the kingdom of Israel doesn't last. The kingdom of Israel is destroyed. Babylon comes in and destroys the city and the temple and takes Israel captive. But I thought that God said that David's son would be on the throne forever. So if that's what God promised and that's not exactly what we see, there must be more. This longing for a king from the line of David uh, to reestablish the throne fed into these expectations that the people had. God has promised something to them, a king and a kingdom that would endure forever. And when the kingdom of Israel split after the rule of Solomon, the people knew immediately that something better was coming. This couldn't be the best that it could be. 
The two kingdoms of Israel and Judah were bombarded with terrible kings. Some good kings, but mostly bad, like absolutely atrocious kings. And all of these terrible kings turned their back on the one true God. And the Israelites all this time desired to see a king like David, a man after God's own heart who would lead them with fairness and goodness and righteousness. So these three promises, just to recap, the promise to be a great nation that blesses others, the promise that God would dwell amongst his people, and the promise that they would have a good king like David to rule over them forever. All of these promises added up to this hope that Israel had, and it was this hope that caused them to live in anticipation. Israel lived in anticipation, anticipating that these, that these promises would come true. And what did all of these promises add up to? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is spoken about by the prophets throughout the Old Testament, and it's God's people longed for the day of the, day of the Lord. The day, it would be the day when God would send his own Messiah, a king like David, to establish his kingdom on earth forever. And in that kingdom, God would make them a great nation, a nation that blessed others. And God would dwell amongst his people, and the king would rule over them with fairness and goodness. Israel believed this, and they anticipated it. This is what they anticipated. And what would be the sign that the kingdom of God had finally come? What were they anticipating? What were they looking for? Well, let's revisit our passages from the very beginning. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Be strong and do not fear. Here is your God and vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like the deer and the tongues of the mute will sing for joy and the water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 61, verse 1. Again, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. This is the day of the Lord. Israel longed for the day when the blind would see, the deaf would hear, the lame would walk, the prisoners would be set free and the broken hearts would be healed because that would be the day that their Messiah had come and all of the things that had been promised to them throughout the Old Testament would be fulfilled. In the ancient world, there had been lots of people come through Israel claiming to be the Messiah. There were military leaders, there were great preachers and theologians, there were even miracle workers, people who gave the Jewish people hope that maybe God had finally come to establish his kingdom and rescue his people. One of these people, for example, uh, can be found in uh, the apocryphal book of the Maccabeans, uh, Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer. He was uh, this military leader who lived a few hundred years before Jesus. Israel was under oppression from the Greek Empire. And Judas the Hammer had raised up an army and a militia that fought off, uh, fought off the Greeks. And Israel even, ha even had their own independence for about a hundred years. And so people thought maybe this, would, this was the Messiah. This was the leader that we wanted who would, because he did reestablish the kingdom. Of course, Judas Maccabeus died, and, you know, a hundred years later, the Romans came in, and the kingdom was, was under oppression again, and, and the throne was, was no more. And so all of these messiahs that come through, of course, they were duds. They didn't work out. Um, but when Jesus comes onto the scene, something is different this time. There's something about him that sets him apart. 
There's something about what's happening in Israel at the time and in amongst the people that sets Jesus apart from all of these past quote-unquote messiahs. You see, early in Jesus' ministry, he goes to the synagogue and he makes a very startling claim. In Luke 4, uh, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, it says this, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. And he quotes here from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives, and the recovery of sight to the blind, and set free the oppressed, and proclaim the year of Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. A little later on in Jesus' ministry, he has an interaction with some of John the Baptist's disciples. In Matthew 11, starting in verse 1, um, it says this, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to the twelve, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now, when John heard in prison what Jesus was doing, he sent a message through the disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. John the Baptist is skeptical. He's hesitant. He's seen this kind of thing before. And so he questions whether or not Jesus is finally this long-awaited Messiah. Why should we believe you? What sets you apart from the others? And Jesus says, listen, you're not sure if I'm the one you've been anticipating? Look around you. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. These are the things that set Jesus apart. These were the signs that the prophets said would be the sign that the day of the Lord had come. So now I want to take a little bit of time and I want to go through these three promises that we talked about and see how Jesus fulfills each of these. First, as we talked about, is the promise of a great nation. In Galatians 3, 6 through 9, it says this, Just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, you know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All nations will be blessed by you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. The faith that Paul is talking about, of course, is faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, through Jesus, those who have faith are welcomed into the family of Abraham. This great nation that God promised to Abraham, the nation that would be a blessing to the world around it. And we are the fruit of that promise. Through Jesus... We have been blessed by Abraham's family, and we've even been welcomed into Abraham's family. What makes Jesus unique, and we'll see this through the, the promises as we go forward, is Jesus plays both parts. He is both parties in the covenant promise. In this case of the promise to Abraham, well, one, he's a descendant of Abraham. He's an Israelite, meant to be a blessing to the world. That's a part of his calling. But he's also the very same God who promised these things to Abraham back in Genesis. So the very God who promises to make Abraham a great nation becomes flesh as a descendant of Abraham. He's playing both parts of the promise. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. The second promise that we talked about is the promise made to Moses, God with us. Hebrews 8, this is a bit of a longer passage, but I think it's important, so I'm going to read the whole thing. Hebrews 8, starting in verse 6, it says this, But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with the people, he says this, See the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them from the land of Egypt, for I showed no concern for them, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not have to teach his fellow citizen or his brother and sister saying, here, look, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete and what is obsolete is growing old and is about to pass away. See, as we discussed earlier, the Levitical system was the means by which God was able to dwell amongst his people. But this system, although good, and that needs to be stressed, the law is a good thing. It was and is a good thing. David delighted in God's law. And even as I said, going through the, the Bible shred and kind of like revisiting some of these passages I haven't really read since university, um, reading the law, I see the beauty in the law. I see what it's meant to accomplish. And it's, it's, it's a good thing. I, I need, it needs to be stressed that the law is good. But although it was good, it was incomplete. As the author of Hebrews says, because God has found fault in the people he made the covenant with, there needed to be a new covenant. So the covenant in the Old Testament was dependent on the faith of the people. And because the people lacked faith, the covenant was no good and God needed to establish a new one. And surprise, surprise, in and through Jesus, we see this new system established. A friend of mine is a New Testament scholar, and she recently wrote a book on the letter to the Hebrews a couple years ago. Um, and I just want to read a short passage from her book that I think really beautifully sums it up. Uh, she says this, Hebrews 8 through 10 presents Christ as a high priest whose self-offering accomplishes an effective once and for all cleansing of guilt and sin. Upon finding fault with the priests, as well as the covenant they represent, God promises that one day, uh, sorry, God promises that a day will come with a new covenant. This promise given at some point in the past speaks of the time when the second covenant will be fulfilled. Hebrews tells us the first covenant was made obsolete when the second was called new. For the author of Hebrews, the first covenant was the first one made with the people, but it was made as a sign of what was to come. The priests and their ministry and their sanctuary were a blueprint or a copy of that which really existed. The new system established through Jesus is faultless because it doesn't depend on the faith of people. Jesus is, as we said, an Israelite, and he represents God's people, and he's the high priest, and he's given the task of maintaining the temple system. 
But again, what makes him different is he's the very God who put this system in place. And to take it one step further, God doesn't simply dwell in a temple or a tabernacle. Rather, God has come to dwell in the very person of Jesus. John 1 says that the word of God took on flesh. And what's really interesting, and I love this, is the Greek word that John uses here is actually the word for tabernacle. So John 1 doesn't simply say the word took on flesh, but John 1 actually says that God tabernacled amongst us. He tabernacled in the person of Jesus. The third promise and the last promise I want to take a look at and is the promise to have a king like David. At Jesus' baptism, God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And I think I've talked about this before, but in the Old Testament, son of God is a royal title. It was a title given to the king. So at Jesus' baptism, when we hear the voice of God come down and say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, this is a declaration that Jesus is the king. Let's take a look at a passage in Matthew, Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. It says this, while the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David's. And then Jesus asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? And then he quotes Psalm 110, the most quoted Psalm in the whole New Testament. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So, and then he asks them again, he follows up with it. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all. And after that, nobody dared to question him. See, in this question, or in this passage, Jesus is asking the Pharisees a really good question, a really important question about the identity of the Messiah. Uh, and they get it right. Jesus asks them, whose son is he? And they know the answer. They know the Messiah is the son of David. They read 2 Samuel 7. They know the true king will be from the line of David. But where they get confused, and honestly, I don't blame them, is when Jesus asks them the follow-up question. See, in this culture, to refer to somebody as Lord was a sign of honor and authority. And it wouldn't make sense for someone to refer to their own child as Lord, their descendant as their Lord, because as their father and elder, you have the authority over them, not the other way around. So when Jesus asks then why David refers to his son, the Messiah, as his Lord, they have no answer. Now, Jesus, of course, does have the answer. He doesn't give them the answer right away. Um... But why does David refer to him, Jesus? Why does David refer to Jesus as his son in this passage? Because Jesus is God. So ultimately, God, Jesus has that authority. And this is picking up on the theme from the last two promises. The promise made to King David was to have one of his descendants on the throne forever. And that is fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus is a descendant of David, a direct descendant from his family. But again, Jesus is the very same God who made the promise to David. And so what does this mean for us? Well, going back to the title of the message, it means that we must travel with anticipation. The Israelites anticipated the establishment of the kingdom of God because of the promises that had been made to them. And Jesus, as Messiah, fulfills those promises, and through him, we now participate in those promises. We get to be a part of Abraham's family, to be a blessing to those around us, inviting them in, come and see how great our God is. We get to dwell in the presence of God. When Jesus left earth, he sent his spirit to live in us. And we have become tabernacles, the dwelling place of the living God. And we have a king. 
one like David, a man after God's own heart, a good king who is sovereign and will rule forever and ever. These are the things that the Israelites anticipated for hundreds and hundreds of years and have become available to us through the person of Jesus. And that's not all. Jesus has made promises to us, things that we, his church, can hold on to, promises that can give us hope and have a, allow us to travel with anticipation, things that we can anticipate being fulfilled in and through him. He promised us that he would never leave us nor forsake us, that nothing can separate us from his love. He promised us that in him we would find redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He promised us his spirit, someone that would empower us to live holy lives set apart for him. He promised us that in him there would be no condemnation or guilt or shame. And he promised us that he is coming back. One day he will return for his bride, bringing heaven with him, taking his place on the throne, where he will forever reign and be worshipped by all people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is what we anticipate, local church. This is our hope. So as we wrap up the series, I just want to remind and encourage everyone, leave behind the baggage the sin, the guilt, and the worry that's holding you back. Grab hold of the promises of God. Pursue the dream that God has put in your heart. Step into the boat, go on the adventure, journey with God, and live in anticipation that God will do everything that he said he will do. Maybe you're here today and you've never contemplated the promises that God has made for you, the promises that God has for you. Maybe you're here today and you don't know that there's nothing that can separate you from God's love. Maybe you don't know that there's a promise of redemption and forgiveness of sins. Maybe you don't know that there's a spirit, there's a person that wants to guide you and empower you. Maybe you don't know that there's no more guilt or shame or condemnation that weighs you down. If that's you today and you don't know those things, I wanna invite you I want to invite you to step into that promise. I'm going to pray really quick and then we're going to close up. Um, so if y'all would pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have called us to be a people um, that anticipates things from you. You have promised us these wonderful things. You have promised us love and the forgiveness of sins. And you promised us that you'd be with us, that there's no condemnation. You promised us that you're going to come back for us one day. And I pray that we would be a people that lives in anticipation of those promises, leaning into the hope that you have given us. Father, we thank you that you're good. We thank you for your cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, local church. Come back next week. Appreciate you.